A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. There's a way you could get this podcast in your feed ad-free twice a month. That's right. With your support, we could wag the dug twice as often as we do now. Wag the Dog is a podcast that does one thing. It holds Doug Ford and his government to account, which means it's Ontario-focused and, you know, not really likely to get a national audience, which, of course, makes it harder to sell ads, which in turn makes it hard to do the show as often as we'd like. But now we have a solution. A dedicated audience could easily fund a bi-weekly Wag the Dog if enough of you give just $5 a month. Once we hit 300 subscribers, it'd be enough to make the show twice a month. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes or go to wagthedug.com. And remarkably, 60 of you have already subscribed. That's uh, 20% of the way there. So thank you. Uh, we need just 240 more of you to do the exact same thing. And then we'll have 300 like that uh, visually influential but politically abhorrent movie from a decade and a half ago. So do it. Support this podcast. Click on the link in the show notes or go to wagthedug.com. Large swaths of North America are on fire. Wildfire smoke has congested parts of Canada for weeks. And the Great Lakes broke heat records this summer. Well, I'm sure we can count on the government of Premier Doug Ford to treat this just as the crisis it is, passing emergency legislation to enact bold new policies to protect our air and climate for generations to come, and to, you know, come out on TV every single day to explain just what they are doing to ensure the future of life on Earth. They do have a Made in Ontario environment plan, but it spills about the same amount of ink on anti-littering initiatives as it does on climate action. And the government has been very slow to implement it. 
Also, as part of a COVID-related economic recovery bill that was passed during this summer's emergency session, the PCs sped through unrelated changes to environmental assessment rules. Advocacy groups and First Nations say those changes violate the province's environmental bill of rights. With the twin crises of the pandemic and climate change raging, we're going to look today at how Doug Ford is using the former to undermine action on the latter. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today and co-worker of multiple people in British Columbia who had very sore throats last week because of the wildfires. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, who has attended and covered a number of past Ford events that involve taking over public parks and sometimes, but not always, installing midway rides. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Like many governments across the country, the Ontario PCs have been pushing out a series of economic recovery strategies that aim to boost business growth following the pandemic's big hit to the GDP. The major legislation this summer was Bill 197, the COVID-19 Economic Recovery Act. Passed in just 13 days from introduction to royal assent, it did a bit more than just offer a bit of stimulus. For Doug Ford... Boosting business growth, as he said, means getting the government out of the way by cutting so-called red tape and reducing regulations. Bill 197, the COVID-19 Economic Recovery Act, affects quite a few pieces of legislation uh, in alphabetical order. The Building Code Act, the Burden Reduction Reporting Act, the Cap-and-Trade Cancellation Act, the Capital Investment Plan Act, the City of Toronto Act, the Clean Water Act, the Development Charges Act, the Drainage Act, the Education Act, the Electricity Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Environmental Assessment Act, and that's not even the end of the ease or even of the affected laws that start with the word environmental. The changes to the Environmental Assessment Act could ultimately mean that many developments can move forward without environmental assessments at all. Q, the legal challenges. There are already three. Today we're going to be talking to one environmental lawyer who's spearheading a legal challenge against Bill 197 to hear why ripping up the environmental assessment process may have real consequences. And later we're going to look at the Ford government's environmental record over the past two years. Have the PCs lived up to the even minimal promises they made when it comes to attacking climate change? Or was their real success the ability to move the news of the day away from conversations about climate change and the environment and direct it other ways? The Environmental Assessment Act is one of the oldest and most important environmental statutes in Ontario. The Act asks you to look before you leap so that people know that when projects go ahead, it's not going to hurt the environment and their communities are going to be safe. It is due diligence, Speaker. It is not unnecessary red tape. And instead, this government has decided to move from an unless exempted approach 
to a regulatory list approach which was considered and then rejected by none other than former Premier Bill Davis when the Act was introduced. So my question to the Minister, why is this government taking us 40 years into the past with their changes to the Environmental Assessment Act? Mr. The Environment, Conservation and Parks. You know, he, he did mention one thing that was correct, Mr. Speaker, and that's the fact the Act is 50 years old. Mr. Wow. Speaker, at that time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was the Prime Minister of Canada. Um, the world has changed. What we know about science, what we know about environment has changed. And what is applied in 1975 to today, it's a different world. We are joined by Priyanka Vital, Legal Counsel for Greenpeace Canada, to discuss Bill 197 and why her organization and quite a few others are taking it to the courts. Can you explain how Ontario's environmental assessment process works now and how that is proposed to change? Because it's sort of a bit of um, a technical process. But basically, you'll have projects that are described by the legislation that require assessment. And generally, they apply to public sector projects, such as, like, for example, a, a dam or a highway. A highway is the best example because that cu- cuts through cities and it cuts through um, nature. So, for example, if we take a highway, um, basically, the government will assess whether it needs to go under um, an environmental assessment. Uh, and then there's an EA process that's followed, and there's a list of um, basically qualifications or a, a list of issues that a proponent or the government will need to deal with in order to say whether it's a, a project that can go that can go ahead and identify all the environmental issues with it. So there's a lot more nuance within that because there's a class EA system, which means that certain projects get certain assessments. And there's a bump up process, which means that it falls under a class, but it can be bumped up to an individual assessment and get a comprehensive review. So it's sort of a complicated process. Without going into, I guess, all the details and mechanics of it, I guess the question is, what is the overall effect? Um, Bill 197, just to back up a little bit, not only affects the Environmental Assessment Act, but it's sort of an omnibus bill. um, And it's going to encompass, it does encompass uh, changes to the Environmental Assessment Act, the Planning Act, the Drainage Act, um, and a couple of other acts that are environmentally significant. Specifically with regards to the environmental assessment, I just want to start by saying that it's sort of an older act that was created in the 1970s. Um, And then in the 1990s, there was an update to it. And since then, um, industry, environmentalists, cities, a lot of stakeholders have been calling for changes to the Environmental Assessment Act, uh, just given how outdated it is. Um, So the changes that have been made more recently, the three significant pieces, um, just cutting through sort of the technical bits, are one, it creates a project list. So that means only things that are on this project are assessed. So that means anything that isn't on the list is not necessarily assessed. And what gets put on the list could be politicized or could depend on what the government thinks is significant as opposed to what is actually environmentally significant. Is that a list of specific projects or types of projects? Uh, It's a specific list of the types of projects. Um, and so rather than requiring all public sector projects to undergo requirement, regardless of the level of the associated risk, um, it could just be subject to a politicized process. So does that mean it's like, for example, you know, all future dam projects, for example, could potentially if that's if dam projects aren't put on the list by the, the PCs when they're done their consultation on this uh, potential move, 
then no more dam projects would get environmental assessments in Ontario? Exactly, or at least on the, under the Ontario process. That list is actually currently out right now. It got put out last week, and there's consultations on it, but we have yet to review it. Um, but maybe we'll find out that it is actually quite inclusive, but there's also a concern that, for example, upon a quick glance, they're removing the assessment for mining projects. That seems like a pretty major one. <laughs> it is a pretty major one. And the excuse they may use is that, oh, well, it's assessed um, federally, so there's no need to necessarily assess it provincially. But there could be problems with that as well. Um, so that's one piece is what goes on the list and what isn't on the list, which is currently out so it can be reviewed and um, people can have their input. The other issue is they're eliminating something called a Class EA in favor of a streamlined EA. So Class EA currently is basically certain types of projects are organized into certain classes. So I used the example before that, for example, a highway will fall under a certain class or a dam, or, um, and they will be assessed in a particular way. And they're sort of a template of how they're assessed. Um, what they're doing is instead of having these different classes of EA, they're planning on having a single streamlined EA process, which will be specified by regulations applying to certain classes of designated projects. The problem is we don't know what that's going to look like and whether this stream, what streamline actually means. Does that mean it's going to cut corners on certain projects or does it mean that um, there's different projects will just follow one process that doesn't really fit very well? So that kind of creates some uncertainty because we don't know how that regulation looks. And then the last is the limitation on bump ups. So a bump up is basically um, when you have a class project, which is assessed in a certain way. Right now, if it's if it holds environmental concern, there's an opportunity to ask the minister to bump it up to a comprehensive assessment. So basically saying, hey, you know, this is undergoing kind of a very template process of review. But we think that this project is so environmentally significant or so concerning that it needs a more comprehensive look. And so you have the opportunity to bump it up to a comprehensive environmental review. They're actually going to eliminate this bump up um, and will apply only in context of ex existing Aboriginal and treaty rights. Um, but for example, if um, you know we have a, a citizen who's non-Indigenous or not within, uh, it, it's not an existing Aboriginal or treaty right, but you have an issue with, say, for example, a gas plant. Um, and it's under this streamlined EA process, and it's besides very sensitive ecological habitat, you won't really have the opportunity to bump it up and ask for a more comprehensive assessment. Do you take issue with how the PCs change these laws insofar as they uh, included them in a bill that, that seemed to be intended to uh, spur economic recovery amid COVID? Absolutely. Um, bill 197 is not a COVID-related bill, and it doesn't have to do with economic recovery. Uh, they tabled it under that name, but it's really environmental law reform, but under this fake guise of being COVID-related in order to kind of push in the legislation without people really paying attention to what's going on. Um, not only that, it's just sort of a smokescreen uh, of, of an uh, economic recovery act, and we do have issue with how it's pushed through, and that is the basis of our lawsuit. So basically, they failed to follow their consultation and public process 
um, with regards to the Environmental Bill of Rights um, by pushing in this legislation before doing a proper consultation process. The last time Greenpeace took the province to court for a violation of the Environmental Bill of Rights, the divisional court blasted the government's disdain for the rule of law declined to really do anything about it in that case. Um, I guess, what are you hoping from your challenge this time? And do you think the court will be more inclined to take an active role in blocking the bill or quashing the legislation somehow? You know, when you're new, um, maybe you have trouble following (laughs) the rules and understanding them because it all happened so quickly. But now this government has been in power almost two years and they should definitely know better. Um, So in this case, it seems even more blatant than last time the way that they passed the legislation. Um, Not only did they fail to comply with their obligations to consult, they sort of did this sort of insidious and sort of bizarre thing, which is within the actual bill, they put in a provision to avoid the 30-day consultation period, which would then, when the um, law was passed, would actually repeal that piece of legislation. So what they were saying was, in like non-legal speak, is hey, for this window, while we're trying to put in this legislation, the rule doesn't apply. We don't have to follow the EBR just for these few this month while we're trying to pass this piece of legislation, which is sort of absurd because, you know, suspending laws just for a period of time while you're trying to pass in a law that amends that law is a little bit, takes a bit of mental gymnastics. So we're pretty confident that we can at least hold them accountable for the fact that they pass this legislation through illegal means without consulting the EBR. And I guess beyond the question of process, even if that's quite clearly the weakest part of the bill in terms of like what could be challenged in a court, if they had followed the process and come out with otherwise identical legislation, what would the next step be then? I guess the question is, is the priority for Ontario to get projects moving at a swift pace? And what does that mean exactly? So does the faster the project moves, is that better for us? Or should we be considering all of the impacts before we even go ahead with a project? So, of course, their interest is in moving ahead as fast as possible, but that's not necessarily in the best interest of the public or the environment. And of course, there may be some projects that do require a streamlined process and that do require... Um, modification to the legislation in order for them to move along faster. So there are instances where that is important, but a lot of times deregulation and cutting tape is just also cutting corners. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I was struck by Priyanka's comment that the bill really is just an environmental deregulation bill and doesn't really have much of anything else there. Yeah, I think that seems right to me. Um, It definitely doesn't seem like, you know, what big businesses in Ontario need right this minute to recover is a different type of list making system for what uh, type of developments get 
uh, environmental assessments and which ones don't, like making that connection between, you know, solving Ontario's deficit and getting people jobs, um, you know, in the in the short or even medium term really doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such, you know, classic disaster capitalism. Again, I think we talked about this last episode. Um but it's also, I guess, the the annoying thing is that the disaster capitalism part really only speaks to the process here, and that it's very easy to have imagined them doing pretty much all of this anyway, even if conditions were entirely different. They would have just come up with some other bullshit excuse. This is probably a good time for us to discuss the Ford government's record on climate change, now that they are more than halfway through their term. One of the PC's center point campaign promises when they won in 2018 was axing the carbon tax, which in practice means getting rid of the former liberal government's cap and trade program. But lo and behold, Justin Trudeau's government in Ottawa threw a wrench in that plan by implementing a nationwide carbon pricing scheme that any province that didn't have its own carbon pricing plan would have to follow. For example, Ontario. Since then, the Ford government has engaged in a series of legal and political battles against the Trudeau government over the quote-unquote tax, uh, which is culminating this week at the Supreme Court of Canada. We will use every tool in our toolbox to make sure that Ontario families, Ontario businesses, and Ontario farmers know exactly what this unconstitutional cash grab is going to cost them. But this plan hit a wall earlier this month. In a superior court decision from September 4th that didn't exactly go under the radar, but perhaps wasn't as thoroughly savored as it might have been, uh, the court struck down the gas pump sticker law. Uh, The Canadian Civil Liberties Association took the government to court, and it was one of those cases where a judge strikes down a self-evidently observed law for all the reasons you'd expect, but it's nevertheless a delight to read 80 paragraphs picking it apart piece by piece. The government had tried to argue that the stickers, which said the federal carbon tax will cost you, with a you know, rudimentary bar graph showing fuel surcharges increasing over time, was simply a matter of you know sharing information with the public. The law, after all, was called the Federal Carbon Tax Transparency Act. But, Justice Morgan wrote, in making transparent only those aspects of the federal policy that fit the government of Ontario's political narrative, the statute speaks in the voice of an unreliable narrator. It is a telltale heart approach to drafting, as where the ostensibly objective narrator of Edgar Allan Poe's famous tale is revealed as ultimately complicit in the acts he describes and their mode of description. So the judge did offer a citation for that bit of literary analysis, uh, although I'm not sure I quite get it, given that the narrator in the telltale heart uh, confesses his guilt by the third paragraph. But what the judge presumably meant was that by the government's own statements, the true meaning of the law was pretty plain. You know, it wasn't the Carbon Tax Transparency Act. It was, as Energy Minister Greg Rickford pretty explicitly put it, about sticking it to the federal liberal government. Uh, As Morgan wrote, you know, to invoke a colloquialism, the statute exudes anger, but says that it is just disappointed. Yeah, it's so interesting that he pulled that quote from Greg Rickford into his decision because that was something that that the energy minister had said during question period, which is, of course, like very much on the record. And it almost seems like that really was part of his, you know, major proof 
that the that the government was doing this, you know, for for specifically political reasons as opposed to uh, inform the public. Yep, but I mean that's a legitimate part of jurisprudence. I mean, it wasn't just that one isolated comment. There were certainly many other comments from the premier and other and his ministers in the media, and you know, question period. But the courts have said basically when. Uh, ministers make statements in the legislature. The courts are free to estat- to interpret the legislation uh, in the context of those statements. It's not the only thing, but that is something that they can absolutely take into account. And in this case, uh, the uh, the judge, Justice Morgan, found these statements to be very illuminating as they certainly uh, uh, removed ambiguity about what the real intention of the law was. So he found it violated the Charter's guarantee of freedom of expression, struck it down, but said, you know, gas retailers are at liberty to keep the stickers on their fuel pumps or to remove them as they see fit. If any of the stickers are still sticking, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this was just such, this whole policy was just such a unnecessary fail for the PCs. I mean, they launched it uh, right ahead of the federal election last year and it was you know kind of part of a an effort to you know in some ways campaign uh against the Justin Trudeau uh Justin Trudeau liberals in Ottawa which i mean clearly that didn't work uh the they won the election uh and it just also was like you know a series of embarrassments and embarrassments i mean i'd say first embarrassment was the ford forcing all his cabinet ministers to take a bunch of photos of themselves and and spread them all over social media pumping gas in front of these stickers you know on the on the week that it was announced embarrassing uh of course you know one that that ford will never let down uh him being a sticker magnate the decals they ordered for the gas pumps uh did not properly adhere to the metal uh, and they did so they didn't stick they didn't stick also embarrassing and I guess finally now this this judge's decision was kind of the icing on the cake and you know it's really like how much money got fueled into this gas pump fight again that the carbon tax fight at the Supreme Court so much energy kind of going into uh, avoiding having Ontarians pay for the carbon tax when it really seems like the public fad against that, which, of course, in lots of cases is fueled by, you know, government rhetoric across the country, uh, has has sort of died out. I mean, we'll have to see what happens at the Supreme Court this week, but... I, th- I think we're at the uh, maybe the end of the road for this particular type of anti-carbon tax uh, rhetoric here in Ontario. Here in Ontario part, I think, is the the crucial element. I suspect it will be one of those things that, that the Albertans uh, grumble about for generations, if you believe that there are, in fact, generations left uh, that will be living on the planet. But for however long Albertans remain on the planet, I suspect there will be grumbling. (laughs) Other than the fight against the quote-unquote carbon tax, what else have the PCs done over the past two years to tackle climate change? Well, Jonathan, truthfully, it's it's not really much. The summer that they were elected, so so 2018, uh, then-Environment Minister Rod Phillips, he's since been uh, moved to Finance Minister, he introduced uh, the previously alluded to Made in Ontario Environmental Plan. Three of the four sections involve what, you know, I would consider a very narrow 
understanding of what, quote, like the environment is. You know, air, water, lakes, rivers, land, green space. It seems like what a five-year-old might come up with if you ask them to paint a picture of the environment or nature. Instead of a Green New Deal, it's a Provincial Day of Action on Litter, which is in Ontario the second Tuesday in May now, in case you're celebrating. This year, I think it was Tuesday, May 12th, and I tried to look up on my various calendars what I was doing, and I didn't find a satisfactory answer, so I regret to say I think I missed it. Another part of the Made in Ontario Environment Plan, which again is uh, over two years old now, is the PC's promise to create a $400 million carbon trust, which would, uh, in their words, leverage public money to incite companies that are big emitters to invest in low carbon technology. That is a policy that could be used to, uh, you know, get big manufacturing plants or other, other kind of companies that are pumping out a lot of pollution and a lot of greenhouse gases to improve their tech. But the, the way the policy is framed, it's actually almost the opposite of what Kathleen Wynne's cap-and-trade plan was. In that case, uh, big emitting companies, they had to buy carbon credits, and then the money that they spent on them went to the government, it was put into a fund, and the government would use that fund to uh, do various things that would lower carbon emissions. How this one's the opposite is that you know, it's taxpayers that would be uh, putting forward this $400 million to incentivize businesses to improve their technology as opposed to the other way around. But the real hitch is, is that all this time later, they haven't actually made the carbon trust at all. So we're recording this on Monday, which is the eve of the carbon tax uh, lawsuit going to the Supreme Court. Now, a thing to know is that the federal government's carbon levy scheme, whatever you want to call it, actually has two different streams to it. So there's the consumer level carbon tax, which is the one that already exists. It's the one that's applied to various products such as gas and also rebated on uh, Ontarians and, and other provinces that are subject to it uh, on their residents' income tax. The second stream, which hasn't come fully into effect yet, would also affect Ontario, and it, but it would specifically affect these big emitting companies. However, we found out today that the PCs have come up with their own performance standards for large industrial emitters. Ottawa has deemed that the PC strategy is basically good enough, and as long as Ontario implements it, then they won't be subject to the federal government's version of it. So I think this is pretty clearly timed with the Supreme Court fight. Um, it also kind of makes me think about how, you know, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford have been getting along particularly well right now. Like, was this Ottawa just throwing the PCs a bone uh, so that there's just one less fight to, you know, have out in the public right now? Because... Uh, John Wilkinson, who is Trudeau's environment minister, basically said that the Ontario's program is significantly weaker than the federal backstop and will result in fewer emissions reductions. But the feds are standing down. Yeah, the word reluctantly shows up as the fifth word in the Canadian press story. So I guess that's just more political hand-wringing over these type of emissions battles. I mean, how far is any of this really getting Canada when it comes to 
you know, cooling it with our emissions? I don't know. What we need now when things are on fire is incremental solutions. So, Jonathan, cormorants and wolves. That sounds like what I would guess a Doug Ford environmental policy to be. (laughs) Cormorants, black bears and wolves. Oh, my. Another initiative that the Ontario PCs have, you know, really made a lot of changes to in the past few years uh, has to do with hunting laws. Last summer, they moved to expand wolf and coyote hunting, including to allow tourist companies in the northern Ontario to market wolf hunts to non-residents of the province. Uh, They're currently consulting on whether to make the spring black bear hunt in Ontario permanent. That is controversial because it can mean that mama bears are killed accidentally. They're not supposed to be killed even, you know, in the spring bear hunt, but it could happen. And that leaves cubs alone to also likely die. They also shipped a bunch of wolves from Ontario to Michigan, weirdly. And if you had told me three years ago that Doug Ford would be premier and he would have some ideas, that sounds about right. Yeah, the weirdest part about the news release announcing the Ontario wolves being shipped to Michigan was its inclusion of the fact that two-way trade between the two jurisdictions totaled $84 billion in 2017. What are we getting in exchange for the wolves? I think the wolves are going to hunt some caribou in Michigan to try to restore the balance on this island in near Thunder Bay. Uh, if there's anyone I trust to oversee the restoration of balance to nature and the universe, it is Doug Ford. Well, most recently, the PCs launched a fall cormorant hunt. For the uninitiated, the double-breasted cormorant is a pretty big bird that nests close to water. Lots of landowners don't like them because they make very big nests in trees, and eventually sometimes that kills the trees, and they also shit everywhere. But they're also a native bird to Ontario, and they, you know, they're, they're part of the ecosystem. They're also inedible, uh, mostly because they only eat fish, which makes them poisonous to humans, which some conservationists say should mean that they're off the table for hunting. Instead, starting on September 15th, the PCs decided that every person in Ontario can hunt up to 15 of these birds per day through the end of December, which means it's basically a call. no idea this happened until I got a City of Toronto news release one day stating, City of Toronto bylaws prohibit cormorant hunting in Toronto, which is the kind of thing that shows up in your inbox and you, you know, wonder, you know, oh, fuck, what what, what happened now? Um, So, yeah, it turns out the city is worried that people are going to try massacring their breeding colonies to let the Leslie Street spit. You know, if someone had told me years ago about, uh, yeah, Doug Ford to be premier, if there's a phrase I'd associate with it, massacring breeding colonies wouldn't have been the top one, but maybe in the top seven or so. So the city had to release that and they came out with it, uh, you know, right as the hunt was starting. But the the Ministry of Natural Resources had announced it maybe a month before that. And I had been digging into it when they announced that because I was they had made it legal in all of the province's wildlife management units, of which there are dozens and dozens. Lots of them are like have ABC section to them. 
the province is actually divvied up into a lot of different chunks, uh, depending on where you can hunt. And it showed up that the city of Toronto uh, was where the Cormorant hunt was was authorized, which I was just like, that is weird. Uh, apparently, there's lots of them on the Humber River as well. Uh, but... Uh, John Tory actually very usefully pointed out that there's a bylaw against discharging any firearms in the city. So that at least cleared that up. It's just weird for them to include the city of Toronto or like, what about the city of Ottawa? Like that's included too, literally anywhere by the province's rules that this is allowed. So then, you know, these municipalities that clearly run large crowded cities where nobody should be hunting birds uh, have to come out and, you know, announce their own rules and warning about it. Like, why not just be a bit more specific with the original rules? Strange. Hunting is prohibited in Toronto, but also discharging a firearm is also illegal in Toronto. Yeah, it's hard to say how much of it is they, how much of them they just wanted to see what would happen, how much of it is just them being sloppy. Does this fall under like cruel stupidity or just like sloppy stupidity? Yeah, very unclear. But anyways, good luck to you, double-breasted cormorants. May many of you uh, live to see next spring. Anyway. The more I think about how the environment and climate change have been handled by the Ontario PCs, the more I think what they've actually done, you know, the most successfully for them is basically taking the conversation about it off the table. So much of politics is about, certainly these days, about, you know, who gets to control the microphone or the megaphone, like who gets to have that platform. And obviously governing at its core is, you know, about setting priorities. But so much of it is also about framing the terms of debate. It's the one fight after another. It's, you know, it's Greenpeace is having to try to fight the, you know, their attempt to gut environmental assessment rules as opposed to, you know, trying to fight for better environmental assessment rules. It's the same, you know, governments not only control the policy agenda, they really control the way we think about these things and how much we think about them and how we spend our time. And now for our newly recurring segment, Foreseeable Disaster of the Month, in which we try to determine what disaster coming up over the course of the next month is the most foreseeable. But first, what did we choose last month and which disaster was better foreseen? I gotta say, foreseeing disasters amid a COVID pandemic, I mean, it's kind of a boon for us. It's not the, the hardest game to ever play. You could say COVID every month and you, you'll, you'll always win or, or lose, depending on how you look at it. My prediction was that the Ford government's refusal to force uh, or even encourage public health units to uh, let the public know about COVID outbreaks in workplaces uh, would lead to uh, spread and a growing number of cases. Uh, and what do you think, Jonathan? Did I did I nail it? I think so. I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, cases are growing. I don't think we know for sure why yet, but I think that's definitely a large part of it. I just did the whole back to school thing, which so far seems to be a clusterfuck as expected, but I don't believe we yet know of any particular crises, although that could easily change by the time this podcast comes out. At the very least, I just remembered I should call my mom and wish her a happy Rosh Hashanah. She's a teacher. So, Allison, what is the foreseeable disaster of the coming month? 
This might be another safe bet. It's definitely COVID-related, and that is the spread of the virus among university students. As of Friday, there were 28 cases linked to Western University. That all really happened in the matter of a week and a half or so. It's one of the biggest migrations of, you know, humans from different parts of Ontario mishmashing all across the province to smaller cities like London, like Kingston, that haven't had really bad outbreaks yet. And I think what we're seeing is kind of just the start of that, especially because beer pong. They're also playing beer pong. I mean, I I, I love that that flow chart that the uh, Middlesex London Public Health Unit put out. Um, yeah, it shows sp- specifically, you know, where different people likely caught from each other, where they interacted over a period of days. So what's your foreseeable disaster of the next month? It's also COVID-related. What are the odds? Um, the province's new rules on gathering, or perhaps a the modification of the old rules. The new limits, however, uh, are on limit number of people allowed to attend what they term an unmonitored private social gathering. That is to say, you can't have, you know, 26 people in a backyard for a wedding, but you could have, you know, 50 people at a, an event hall, banquet hall for a wedding. And as with any of these laws where the rules sort of mismatch and seem to treat different classes of people differently and also don't seem to have a whole lot of underlying logic, the concerns are, of course, going to be in largely in terms of enforcement. Uh, you know, we know that laws generally, and certainly laws with, where a lot of discretionary power is given to police, especially, uh, are, you know, not applied equally across different populations. And you know that certain people will be cracked down on harder than others. That tends to be how it is. And so the province has created more rules for that. And so really is only a matter of time before, one, uh, a totally, a reasonably safe gathering is, in fact, busted up by police or by law officers. And two, until an entirely permitted gathering is found to be a super spreader event. Uh, that seems fairly likely. I mean, clearly what the province is hoping they're trying to do is not interfere with businesses being able to have event spaces or any sort of thing like that, while at the same time showing that they're taking some sort of action. Uh, So I see, I mean, there are a couple potential types of foreseeable disasters that could come out of this. And uh, it's just a question of whether the province will modify the rules before one or both of those things happen. All right. Well, we'll check back in next month with the success of these incredibly depressing and foreseeable disasters. That was Wag the Doug, a show about gathering with your loved ones, as long as you're in a corporate environment. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. Our producer is Damilola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Wag the Doug is listener supported. If you like what we do and want us to do it twice as often, support us for just five bucks a month at wagthedug.com or click on the link in the show notes. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.